The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of chapters 27 and 28. Martin begins his fumbling efforts to produce antitoxin, spending labored hours on tedious processes that he, in the bliss of uninterrupted research, never finds tedious. And however fumbling, his work has the, quote, wide-ranging, sniffing, snuffling, undignified, unself-dramatizing curiosity, unquote, without which, Sinclair Lewis says, there can be no science. In these early years at McGurk, he learns little about antibodies and a lot about what lurks beneath the placid surface of the Institute. He learns that in the Institute, the wealthy and pedigreed Ross McGurk finds his excuse for having lived. And he learns that through the Institute, his wife Capitola satisfies her urge to be a great white uplifter. McGurk reveres Gottlieb, finds contentment just in sitting on a stool and watching him work, and pledges to one day be his garçon. Mrs. McGurk resents him for refusing to drop his silly researches and cure cancer, or give her friends a tour of his lab. Martin and Leora attend their first McGurk scientific dinner, with McGurk and Capitola, a prominent London surgeon as their guest of honor, a lot of manipulators of oil stocks or corporation law and their cooing wives, and Terry Wickett, who volubly proclaims he just couldn't duck this spread. The eminent guests are given a tour of the lab, where one sprightly lady expresses disappointment, that they harm the poor little guinea pigs, that there aren't more larky retorts and electric furnaces, and that Martin won't dress up in his laboratory dentist coat. Wicket's response is to take his coat and walk abruptly away. And a few comments later, Martin is right behind him. Martin begins to wonder about whether McGurk, with its infighting and intrigue, its director's preaching of the ideal of cooperation, and its scientists who spend more time in conferences than in research— is, indeed, a sanctuary of truth and pure science. But at least he has the freedom to shut his door against the distractions. One day, Gottlieb and Wicket descend on Martin to say they've decided it's time he stopped puttering around and got to work. They insist that he will never accomplish anything significant unless he masters physical chemistry and mathematics. After half an hour of knee-jerk defensiveness, Martin decides that they are right, and he gets down to educating himself. He studies algebra, trigonometry, analytic geometry, and differential calculus. He reads the classics of physical science, from Galileo to Newton to Faraday. Leora faithfully bears the tedium while he works, takes him on a vacation when he needs the rest, and urges him on when he second-guesses the point of it all. When America enters the war, Tubbs offers the service of the Institute to the War Department, which means only that the scientists are assigned titles, uniforms, and minor responsibilities that interfere with their real work. For Gottlieb, the war means much worse. He is made to endure seeing his German nephews killed, his sons fighting their own cousins, and a rising tide of hatred for all things German. 
having almost recovered from the anxieties of Winnemac, he now begins to retreat within himself again. In the insane flaming blur of his work, his studies, and his wartime duties, Martin makes a discovery not unworthy of a Gottlieb, something at the mysterious source of life. One late night in the lab, he examines a flask that should have had a cloudy growth of staphylococci, and discovers that it shows no signs of bacteria. Examining it under the microscope, he sees only the outlines of what had been bacteria. It appears to him that the culture has committed suicide. Seized by that quality which defined him, his one gift, curiosity, he sets to work to discover an explanation for what on earth happened. He does research in the library. He reproduces the conditions to see if he obtains the same results. He identifies four possible causes and eliminates them one by one. And then he hunkers down for his first great experiment. He stumbles home the next morning, desperate to tell Leora, and discovers that she isn't there. She had been worried and gone to find him, and he meets her at the subway station, where he expresses a mixture of wild enthusiasm and terrible doubt. Before she even has time to reassure him, he's headed back to the lab. After long sleepless labors to successfully reproduce his results, he decides that he is on to something that he has discovered something in the pus of a staphylococcus infection that checks the growth of several strains of staph, and he calls it the X-principle. He is filled with wonder at the prospect that it might apply not just to staph, but to any bacteria. The next week is one of sleepless, agitated days and nights of research. When he is sure that the X-principle reproduces itself indefinitely, he shares his discovery with Gottlieb. Gottlieb wastes no time in congratulations, but instead assaults him with questions, and issues a warning, not to let the director know about it too soon. Martin begins trying to reduplicate his results with infections from other sources, failing completely with some and succeeding consistently with others. He lets doctors begin trying it in the treatment of their patients. Gottlieb berates him for inviting press and praise and distraction by delivering a cure to doctors before he has fulfilled the true scientist's mission, to identify the nature of the X-principle. Martin's insomniac devotion to his research leads him to a state of neurasthenia, a now-obsolete diagnosis of fatigue and emotional disturbance. His is characterized by a vast array of crippling phobias. He flees to the Vermont hills for a few days of solitary rest, hoping to return with the energy and mental peace to renew his experiment. The second of my posts was called Science as Religion. In philosophy, the moral-practical dichotomy is the idea that morality conflicts with your practical interests. This dichotomy typically takes the form of an antagonism between the spiritual and the material, between moral goodness and success in the real world, between religion and science. In Aerosmith, it seems to me that Sinclair Lewis subscribes to this dichotomy, 
but in an interesting way. Instead of creating a world in which religion and science are at odds, he creates one in which true science is religion. I'm stepping outside my comfort zone in commenting on this. I'm not a philosopher. But for now, all I want to observe is the many ways in which Sinclair Lewis makes beautiful, stirring tribute to a passionate and unwavering commitment to the ideals of science, and the ways in which he sets this commitment at odds with practical success. I'd love your help in inventorying the most relevant passages. The passage from our most recent chapters that prompted the thought was Gottlieb's speech to Martin about the dangers of allowing doctors to play with the X principle as a cure before Martin has discovered its basic nature. Contained within Gottlieb's lecture is a reverential commitment to scientific truth, to clarity of understanding, and to uncompromised standards of certainty. But that commitment to truth is continually set at odds with success, that word of which Gottlieb feigned ignorance. And success means prestige, promotions, fame, money, and even practical medical application, healing, cures. Sometimes he seems to be suggesting that those material concerns are hazards that can, if he's not careful, steer the scientist off course but at other times he seems to be suggesting that they are fundamentally and irreconcilably at odds with a devotion to truth. Here's an excerpt from that passage. Quote, You want to be a miracle man, and not a scientist? You do not want to complete things? You wander off monkey-skipping and flap-doodling with colon bacillus before you have finished with staff, before you have really begun your work, before you have found what is the nature of the X principle. Get out of my office. You are a, a, a college president. Next I know you will be dining with tubs and get your pictures in the paper for a smart cure vendor. Unquote. In this world, one devoted to scientific truth cannot possibly have his picture in the paper, cannot possibly be an institute director, cannot possibly be that worst of all things, a college president. It is one or the other, a hallowed dedication to truth or a shallow interest in success. This issue comes up repeatedly, in chapter after chapter, and I believe it gets to the heart of the novel, to its theme. So, please be continually on the lookout for, and share in the comment section, other passages that reflect this dichotomy between science and success. The last of my posts was called Reverence for the Scientist. Whether one believes that success is essentially at odds with science, I think everyone can agree that short-range values can easily get in the way of long-range commitments. That, I think, lies at the heart of what makes Sinclair Lewis's moral practical theme, if not true, at least compelling. So, some of my very favorite passages in this book are the reverential tributes to the pure scientist, to the man of unwavering commitment to truth, to the researcher motivated purely by an urge to know, to really, fully, and finally know. I thought I'd collect and reflect on a few such passages here. And again, I'd love for you to proactively 
or to retrospectively share some favorites of your own. From Chapter 27, when Martin is first left alone to do research, real research, in his McGurk lab. Quote, With all his amateurish fumbling, Martin had one characteristic without which there can be no science. A wide-ranging, sniffing, snuffling, undignified, unself-dramatizing curiosity. And it drove him on. Unquote. From Chapter 28, when Martin lays aside his grandiose visions of his name in journals and textbooks or of scientific meetings cheering him, and sits down at the altar of the laboratory table. Quote, when he was back at his bench, the grandiose aspirations faded, and he was the sniffing, snuffling beagle, the impersonal worker. Before him, supreme joy of the investigator, new mountain passes of work opened, and in him was new power. Unquote. From Gottlieb's Musings on the Religion of a Scientist. Quote, to be a scientist, it is not just a different job, so that a man should choose between being a scientist and being an explorer, or a bond salesman, or a physician, or a king, or a farmer. It is a tangle of very obscure emotions, like mysticism, or wanting to write poetry. It makes its victim all different from the good, normal man. The normal man, he does not care much what he does, except that he should eat and sleep and make love. But the scientist is intensely religious. He is so religious that he will not accept quarter truths, because they are an insult to his faith. Unquote. And, of course, from one of the most famous passages of the novel, Martin's Prayer of the Scientist. Quote, God give me unclouded eyes and freedom from haste. God give me a quiet and relentless anger against all pretense and all pretentious work and all work left slack and unfinished. God give me a restlessness whereby I may neither sleep nor accept praise till my observed results equal my calculated results, or, in pious glee, I discover and assault my error. God give me strength not to trust to God. Unquote. 